0: Welcome to the Grim Drive Podcast, where we explore mental health through the lens of professional sports and athletes. My name is Jonathan Busfield, and I'm here with John Kuna. Today we'll be discussing dopamine, and really hormones in general, uh, but dopamine is kind of the main focus. Before we get to that, you know, this is our 40th episode. We usually... um, do something kind of outside the box for every 10th episode so this is i wouldn't say this is quite uh, in that realm uh, yeah it's a little bit i think we got some other things coming up that probably would be typically what we would do for an every 10th episode um we're gonna eventually do an episode on or possibly more than one depends on on ted lasso john you gotta watch it okay right i know i gotta start it right
1: i know i have started i've seen episode one and it's great I need, I need to just i need to dive in more and get it all done okay yeah okay
0: so um it's interesting because we always joke around about like you know how much as coaches or therapists, like w- what part Wendy Rhodes are we from billions? Right, <laughs> what part Ted Lasso are we? Yeah, how, how many episodes of Ted Lasso have you watched? Just the one. Just the one. Just Did the you first see episode. Roy Kent? No, no, okay. not yet. You'll laugh at this. So okay. my sister kind of like jokes around that I'm I'm more Roy Kent than I am like Ted Lasso or that kind of thing. So yes, you, you know, uh, once you see his character, you'll you understand that a little bit more. But yeah, we're definitely going to do an episode where we kind of recap Ted Lasso because there's. So many different good things in there about just from a coaching perspective, from a team sports perspective, from mm-hmm. an individual athlete perspective that, and look, it's a show, it's fictional, but there's a lot of great stuff in there that I think that, um, you know, relates to the work we do and some of the people we work with. And um, I think it'd be a, a funny episode for us to kind of, funny and informative episode for us to tackle. We might bring on a, a guest, a guest yeah. host um, from, from Rise and Tread to, to join us in that. So we will save that surprise. You might also do an episode on like the best and worst movie slash show therapist at some point. Big time. That's definitely something we're gonna do. Yep. Um, you know, spoiler alert. Yeah, it's Sean. You know, from Sean. Goodwill Hunting. Hunter, we probably can probably, yeah. be probably gonna be at the top of the list. <laughs> yeah. Um, that doesn't mean you shouldn't listen anyway. Yep. Um, if you don't, it's not your fault. Um, <laughs> so we got some good episodes coming up. We just um recently did an episode where we interviewed Nathan Baugh. Uh, he has got a newsletter. Uh, and a uh, sort of startup company called Sideline Sprint, which we encourage everyone to check out. Um, that was our 38th episode. We'd, our last episode before this, we just did on uh, the kind of Blackhawk scandal that was going on, mm-hmm. um, which we had talked about before, Was just we were confused as to why it wasn't getting more attention. And now it is um, for different reasons. So I um, encourage people to listen to that episode because we do cover sort of a, a wide spectrum yeah. in terms of like the you know people who experience mental health and how it relates to, to athletes and, and sports. Um, so for this episode, again, we're we're going to talk about dopamine. We're going to talk about hormones in general. Um, John, specifically, you're going to talk about the different, the main kind of hormone players that we should yep. know about, or people should know about if they're interested. But there was a Wall Street Journal article uh, by Ann Lemke, uh, Anna Lemke, uh, about how digital addictions are drowning us in dopamine, and and this was something we've been trying, we've had on the slate to talk about for quite some time. Long time. When I saw it, it's sort of like it's one of those articles where you see the head, you know. Uh, Head, uh, not not headlines. The the titles, you know, mm-hmm. like a, of an article is sometimes clickbaitish. But this was more like I saw the title, and I was like, okay, this I want to read this, and I read it. And I'm like, this kind of describes exactly what I think a lot of people are struggling with, whether they know it or not. Mm-hmm. Um, so Anna Lemke is an American psychiatrist who is the chief of Stanford Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic. Uh, she's a specialist in the opioid epidemic in the U.S. and an author of Drug Dealer MD: How Doctors Were Duped, Patients Got Hooked, and Why It's So Hard to Stop. So she wrote this article about um, dopamine and how you know digital addictions are, are impacting us. and I think it you know our systems are kind of flooded uh, with dopamine from so many different directions nowadays, whether it's like video games, social media, the internet in general. Um, you've even talked about like you know movie or show watching platforms sort of not having stop cues and mm-hmm. things like that. There was that Netflix special uh, what was it called? Social
1: experiment, I think
0: no. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, The social dilemma. Social dilemma, yep. Which was definitely popular maybe about a year ago, a little bit less than that. uh, Mm -hmm. That really goes into social media platforms and and who created them and how they created them to sort of hijack some addictive processes in the brain. Yep. Pretty scary stuff. Um, So she, I mean, in here, they even talk about how, you know, quote, the quantity, variety, and potency of highly reinforcing drugs and behaviors has never been greater. In addition to addictive substances like sugar and opioids, there's also a whole new class of electronic addictions that didn't exist. Until about 20 years ago, like texting, tweeting, surfing the web, online shopping, and gambling, mm-hmm. uh, these digital products are engineered to be addictive, using flashing lights, celebratory sounds, and you know likes to be able to uh, promise ever greater rewards that are just a click away. That to me is a great summary of like sort of the position we're all in, yep. and I don't think people quite realize how much it's impacting them. So we're going to get into um, our takeaways from this article, and and you know obviously a focus on dopamine. Um, often called the molecule of more um, mm-hmm. but I want to kick it to you John just, just to educate people a little bit about you know what is dopamine versus the other some of the other major hormones that um, you know people should know about in terms of how it impacts them
1: yeah and we're gonna get into dopamine specifically but like you said it's the uh, it's sort of like your pleasure hormone or like your your reward system yep. right so you know some of this sugar and beeps and notifications on your phone, activate dopamine production, which you are like, oh, I want more of that, right? So we're going to dive into dopamine specifically. So that's sort of like your pleasure hormone. Um, Some of the other big ones are endorphins, oxytocin, serotonin, and cortisol. And endorphins is the next one. And that's sometimes um, referred to as like your, your happiness hormone, which is very different than pleasure. Um, happy, you know, a lot of people, um, one of the b- best ways that you can get endorphins, um, is through like high intensity workouts. Mm-hmm. Um, and so some people were, might know this by like the runner's high, right? So after you work out, your endorphins are released sort of as a way, it's kind of like your body's own production of like morphine, essentially mm-hmm. it's yep. to kind of help, um mask the pain that you might be in after so you know you work out and then afterwards you get that release of endorphins it makes you feel like wow this was really great Mm -hmm. also to help code that exercise is important and to sort of reward the exercise post it no one really gets endorphins when while working out that's usually not a pleasurable experience um but then you get that rush afterwards um so it's your body's way of sort of both yes rewarding but also sort of like i said the kind of like a morphine effect um and then uh, serotonin is sort of like, like a mood stabilizer almost, or like your willpower, your design to like be active and to be doing things. Um, and serotonin often relates to like when receptors aren't working properly, can re- when serotonin is low depression, anxiety are typically pretty high. Um, so medication usually around depression and anxiety is centered around serotonin production and receptors that re- receive and monitor that.
0: So this would be why they're called like SSRIs or S- selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors yes. are, are what antidepressants are typically. Yep, okay. Exactly. Yep.
1: It's to ma- it's to sort of monitor and manage serotonin levels within that. So serotonin helps with like sleeping, it helps with eating and digestion. It's one of the good just sort of like helps the body just feel good. Mm-hmm. Um the other one too is this is we refer to cortisol, which is often referred to as like the stress hormone. Mm-hmm. So when you're feeling stress, when you're feeling um, an an overmatch, you get cortisol releasing into the into the brain. Um, which, trying really hard not to sound too encyclopedic, but uh, you know a lot of that stuff gets it starts to cortisol's effect. Um, when there's too much involved in the brain, it shuts off the part of the brain that allows you to like think properly mm-hmm. and kind of helps put you into that, like fight, flight or freeze mm-hmm. mentality. Um, so when you're in sort of like either a state of high stress or panic, the two main um, hormones that get released are adrenaline and cortisol. Adrenaline kind of like gears you up, mm-hmm. uh, and cortisol kind of shuts the thinking down. So not a great combination if you're in a, if you're in a state you need to think clearly. So, uh, cortisol is, a, um, like your stress hormone what what gets released when you're in high states of stress. And then oxytocin is the other one. Um, lots of cool new research on oxytocin, um, and I'm like not going to go. Hormone? Yeah, yeah, it's okay. like your, like the cuddle hormone yeah, that we yeah, think of. Yeah. So yeah. like if you if you embrace somebody, and research is a little bit um, both ways here, but it, you know the 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 idea is that if you embrace somebody for more than 25 seconds, this was one study that that, that, that actually like calculated this that oxytocin gets released in, and you feel that like. Support that contribution, that um, that love. Um, Physical touch is really key for that. Yeah, agreed. Yep. Um, so oxytocin is sort of like a relationship builder. Mm-hmm. Some cool new research is that it can actually um, invoke biases in the people that you surround yourself with, and can actually contribute to prejudice type of thinking, which was interesting. Mm. I haven't done as much thinking, and that could be maybe a different conversation yeah. that we have. But I thought that that was one. So yeah, oxytocin is like your relationship hormone or your love hormone. Again, it's one of the things that we, that we talk about. Um, so those are sort of the, the fab five maybe, or Mm -hmm. like the, the, the the big ones that we talk about. Of course, there are more hormones in our body than just those, but those are the ones that specifically relate to like mental health and how we're feeling is those are the sort of the main contributors to, to how those things go down. It's
0: interesting. Yeah. And there was, um, hormones are fascinating to me i don't i'm not like an expert in that area at all but yeah. just understanding like how they sort of control everything um, yeah. and can shut off from I mean, even processes like appetite growth stress blood sugar sleep cycles sex sleep. drive sex function all kinds of different things like they all play a role in that mm-hmm. and uh it it's both fascinating and kind of scary at the same time because <laughs> it's like really intriguing to learn about in terms mm-hmm. of how intricate this system is in inside a human body uh, it's scary because it makes you realize like you're not as in control as you think. Yep. And uh, and these things have to be factored in yep. um, to a degree. I think if you sort of over-obsess over them, then it's probably just going to shut you down yep. because there's no way to perfectly understand how they're all working at any one time. Right. Um, but well, stay edgy, tuned, yeah. Jotham, yeah. <laughs> because at the end of
1: this uh, episode, I'll yes. be sharing some healthy ways that we can generate and regulate our hormones within our own body. There we go. Yep. Especially <laughs> because,
0: I mean, this whole article is about how You you talk about the fab five which by the way is a a great uh michigan college basketball reference from from the way back so Mm -hmm. props for that johnny um but you know you talk about like the 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 five main players right in terms of hormones that that people should know about it seems like dopamine has been thrust into like way more way too much of a superior role um Mm -hmm. with regard to everyday life for people and not in a way that's good right in a way that's really hurting people and i think that's what this article is all about because she kind of talks about how um you know, basically that it's, it's just, we're being bombarded by things that are going to elicit the release of dopamine so much more than in the past that it's putting us in a very, um, uh, almost, I would say vulnerable in the sort of addictive like cycle, uh, where we're, we're kind of all addicts to dopamine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what happens when you're, uh, you know, an addict and you're dealing with that kind of addictive cycle, there's withdrawal symptoms, uh, constantly. And there's, um, you know, you develop a tolerance for things. And so, you know, we, we know that dopamine is a molecule, molecule of more. And so if you're getting dopamine and you're developing tolerance and you need more and more and more, mm-hmm. and you can, and you have the, the withdrawal part of the cycle on the come down every single time, you can see what kind of a life this is providing to most people, right? Mm-hmm. It's a very... Um, it's a very frustrating and uh, anxiety-provoking existence because you have to keep feeding that you know dopamine monster, yeah. Or else um, you're going to be living the withdrawal thing, but then you can never really get back to a base level. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the takeaways you'll probably talk about this a little bit later on in terms of how it relates to your overall strategies for people when it comes to hormones. But one of the takeaways that I mean from this article is that she actually prescribes people to take a break, Mm -hmm. um, from dopamine, like a 30 day, um, almost cleanse, I guess you would say to Mm -hmm. reset your baseline. Cause again, when you're addicted to something, whether it's coffee or anything else, you keep needing more to get the same result. And eventually you see this with like, especially with like weed and alcohol, people start by doing it because of the high they get right. Or the buzz they get or whatever. But eventually, you cro- you get such a tolerance, you establish such a tolerance that you are just doing it to like function normally on a day-to-day basis, not get any kind of pleasure out of it. Yep. When you cross that line, it's very, very dangerous, whether that's with alcohol or with social media or anything else. Yep. And I think the <coughs> only way to sort of get back to a baseline level is to reset yourself, and that's to go without it for a certain amount of time, mm-hmm. um, w- which I mean, just reading this article made me realize even... For someone who's kind of aware of this stuff, I think uh, I could probably benefit from a month off from, from dopamine uh, yeah. sources and things like that. Whether it's um, you know the internet, social media, Twitter, mm-hmm. uh, that kind of thing, you know, it's it's very. I think few people, when it comes to addiction, actually you know see that they've crossed the line until it's kind of too late. Most of the time, it's it's that's the case. So let's get into some of our takeaways. What uh, just from reading this article, what were some of the major takeaways you had, John?
1: Uh, well, one of them was the the concept and one of the terms it was called was like dopamine fasting, uh, which was a uh, a term coined by Dr. Seppa out in California um, and did a lot of research and sort of one thing, a few misconceptions about dopamine fasting, it does not lower dopamine levels, right? So I think that was one thing that people took away of like, oh, your dopamine levels will go down. No, that's not the case. Mm-hmm. it's It's sort of like a clickbaity term to get people to pay attention to it but mm-hmm. it's not to be taken literal mm-hmm. um which was which was an important distinction um and the concept is sort of from a cognitive behavioral therapy approach of sort of identifying behaviors that are not in the best interest of the person and sort of desensitizing and sort of bringing them back from those types of behaviors and the the areas that they talk about were like emotional eating excessive internet usage and gaming gambling and shopping porn and masturbation recreational drugs and like thrill seeking were the areas in which they uh they look to sort of target to sort of reduce those things to give ourselves like to your point to give ourselves a break from it mm-hmm. and one of my biggest takeaways from from the article um was that if we and you spoke about this too like if we keep up this pattern um for hours every day over weeks or months the brain's set point for pleasure changes now we need to keep playing games not to feel pleasure but to just to feel normal mm-hmm. what you had mentioned yep and you know what I, how i think about that is it's no different than you're training your brain like just like if you were doing Push-ups, or you were doing bench press or squat, after a certain point, your muscles adapt and you need to put on more weight. And it's no different than with, with this type of stuff. If you are starting to do weed or alcohol or cigarettes is another key example with nicotine. You get that initial high, your brain adapts, and then it needs more of that. It's your brain is a muscle, right? And so it responds very much in the same way. And the danger that I think that a lot of people are in is that, that withdrawal you speak of, and that it's just, now it's just normal. I need, I need too much dopamine in my head just Mm -hmm. to feel, just to feel normal. Um, and so then you'll actually, not only will you need that, but you will, if you're not conscious of it, you will, unconsciously seek that out to give yourself that, to give yourself that dopamine rush, because that's your, now your new normal. And I think that once it goes into the subconscious, it's really dangerous to break that habit. Because to your point, most people don't understand it's a problem until it's a real problem. yeah um, And so that was a big thing that, that came up to me too. and And that relates not just with dopamine, but Cortisol, especially as well, that where any hormone that you have too much of in your brain, it becomes your default, your normal state, and then your brain will actually seek those things, those those hormone re- like generators, mm-hmm. um, because that that's the normal state that it feels even comfortable in, it, yeah. even if it's yeah. bad for it. And cortisol is a
0: yeah.
1: prime example of that with stress. When we over stress ourselves, our brain will actually seek it out because that's our default. We've created that to be our norm, our new normal. So this is interesting because this is where like sort of the
0: the, the term comfort. Uh, or normal is a very relative kind of thing. And yep. it's not always uh, a good thing, right? I think what's comfortable or normal um, to a person's brain might actually really be hurting them. Yeah. But it's what the brain's kind of grooved out a pathway for and is mm-hmm. going to go seek it back. This makes me think of sort of um, not necessarily trauma, but like difficult relationships or being neglected in relationships. I think you see a lot of people repeat the same patterns with that kind of thing. Yep. Uh, and often this, that can be why, right? Is that this is their baseline. This is their normal it's what they're most comfortable with because it's most familiar to them, mm-hmm. but not comfort in a feel-good way, comfort in a, I'm used to this, so I'm going to go back to that because yeah. it, it makes sense to me. Sure, but It's horrible. Right. I think that's why you see people repeat you know, are doomed to repeat the same sort of mistakes in terms of who they choose for partners and things like that. Yeah. This can be related to that. Yeah. Our brains
1: hate discomfort, yeah. right? They're specifically designed to avoid it like at all costs, mm-hmm. right? Even if it's not in our best interest, but the only way to expand and grow and mature is is to come up to the threshold of discomfort and push through that yeah. so that you expand your you expand that a little bit further. But a brain doesn't think that way. Right. And if we just leave it to do its own thing, it's gonna settle into what's comfortable and what it knows and stay there unless we take very, very proactive steps to to push ourselves through that.
0: Yeah. And I, I think it, it all it relates to what you just said made me think of like how what the brain deems as unfamiliar. It might actually be more biased against, to steer away from that mm-hmm. and steer into something that's unhealthy, mm-hmm. right? So we choose unhealthy over unfamiliar a lot of times, if that makes sense. Yeah, which is weird, but it just kind of happens sort of unconsciously, and it it makes you realize that you have to be. This ties back into how in the last episode uh, we talked a little bit about you know Marcellus Wiley and what he was saying, and how you have to be responsible for your mental health, and, yep. and this ties into that because not only as it relates to uh, making sure you you recognize how some of the things you've been through may have carved out a pathway that's uh, at a disadvantage to you in terms of where your brain might groove back towards things that are unhealthy or toxic. But it also relates to just the concept of behavioral economics. Like we're gonna get into like a, a, a Twitter thread uh, at, towards the end of this episode that goes into life in the 50s versus life now. And this relates to this because I think life now you have to, if you just coast by and you don't really increase your awareness about what's going on in your environment around you, it's going to negatively impact you because we live in a consumerist economy and and uh, and culture where we're being bombarded by things at all times. Like mm-hmm. the, it's like the concept of behavioral economics, right? Where companies and brands and platforms and things on the internet, there is a goal behind them, and the goal is to hijack your brain so that you spend money, mm-hmm. right? And it, it reminds me of I forget who said this quote, but the quote of like if you if you're on the internet and you can't see what the product is, it means you're the product, right? And this Facebook is like an example of this, right? Um, You know, so when you're doing these things, like it's not like life was when it was less complicated, you know, 50, 60 years ago. Everything you do when you drive, you're bombarded by fast food signs, right? When you're online, you're bombarded by ads and you're bombarded by different things and, and, you know, people trying to get certain hormones to release in your brain so that you make a purchase or Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. And you have to fight back. The only way to fight back is to do two things, in my opinion, get educated Mm -hmm. and do what you call, you say, um, you call it prehab, right? Mm -hmm. Where you're actually doing some proactive work to understand how to uh, almost train your brain to be its best. Uh, defend against. Defend against. Yep. Reset the baseline. Yep. Be able to have sort of defenses against some of the things that are in our environment that are mm-hmm. going to attack us in different ways. Yep. We have to accept that and start from that place. If people don't think that's happening, they are deluding themselves. And so, hey, denial is a real thing. But if, if a person is living in denial,
1: they are ignoring the obvious and it's probably hurting them. In yeah. Ways. I mean, and the denial just feeds into the comfort right? If I don't, if I don't have to, if I don't have to address the fact that I'm not okay, then I'm, then I'm tricking myself into feeling, Feeling comfortable. Yep. Uh, one one shameless plug here. Uh, a, a friend of an, a friend of mine uh, wrote a book called "The Comfort Crisis." Michael Easter. I mm-hmm. highly recommend people mm-hmm. re, uh, kind of look out for that one. It talks specifically about like how our new culture has just designed around us being comfortable, and that being a massive detriment to our our health. Yeah. So definitely check that book out. It's is really, that
0: more about like the um, illusion of comfort or actual comfort? Both. Okay, because this is what this ties into. Like you know what she talks about is. You know, seeing more and more patients who suffer from depression and anxiety, yeah. including otherwise healthy young people from loving families, elite education, and relative wealth, their pro- this is her quote, their problem is not trauma, social dislocation, or pro- poverty It's too much dopamine, a chemical produced in the brain that functions as a neurotransmitter associated with feelings of pleasure and reward, end quote. So. Now, look, I feel like she kind of ignore, ignores how nuanced trauma is um, and, and even maybe like hereditary trauma and how that can be passed through. But yep, generational that, trauma, right, everything. Right, yep. exactly. That being said, it does make me think of of what you had just talked about with that book and and that concept that we're all kind of wondering what's causing mental health trends to get worse, right? And so historically speaking in the U.S. anyway, life has never been easier. I mean, it's with a broad brush, but like mm-hmm. if you think about it, it's really never been easier. And maybe that <laughs> is that comfort sort of like a um, – you know, a sort of collective or cultural version of parents, you know, you, we talk about a lot about how parents, most people have probably heard the the trajectory of a typical family where like the parents had to struggle and had to fight for everything they got, right? And mm-hmm. had to, you know, um, you know, work two jobs or that kind of thing because yep. their family had no money. And then they're successful. And then they have kids and they say, I don't want my kid to have to deal with what I had to deal with, mm-hmm. which is a very noble thing. And you're trying to protect your kids and you want them to have a good life. But you, sometimes that goes so far, uh, and there's a very fine line, in my opinion. It goes too far, and you rob kids of the ch- the chance to actually experience adversity, which actually will benefit them long yeah. the term. Yep. So is this kind of like a collective version, cultural version of things got get, getting to the point where we've almost, you know, things are too good, and is that what the comfort crisis kind of? Yeah, I mean, it
1: talks about like getting out of your own, getting out of your own self and being and and challenging yourself, putting yourself into states of discomfort because then you start to prove to yourself you're actually more capable than you want. And he talks a lot about how things are relatively easy. We want food, boom, click of a button. We Mm -hmm. want this, uh, click of a button. It's all so easy for us. And it's generating this inability for us to step outside of that and be uncomfortable for the sake of growth. And I, I think that yes, I think she paints a little bit of a broad brush and sort of dismisses some things that could be contributing to the mental health crisis, specifically with trauma. Um, and I'm sure we'll do a very specific episode around trauma specifically. But I do think that the comfort of what's going on has definitely contributed to the states of depression and and anxiety too. If you if you don't have opportunities to execute on something difficult and either fail at it or get through it, you don't get that that you know that definitely hinders your ability to feel good about yourself and see that you're capable of being able to handle these types of things if you're never given opportunities to struggle then you don't know how to when it happens i don't say if i say when there are going to be moments of your life where you're going to struggle you're going to have shit that comes up you're going to not get the promotion you want you're going to not get the job you want you're going to whatever it whatever it is no one goes through the life without dealing with adversity mm-hmm. and if you're not given opportunities of how you can go that and Everybody, you know, who's still here has a hundred percent success rate of get, getting through tough times. And you need those opportunities to prove to yourself that you can so that when it happens again, you know that you've been there before and you have an understanding of the systems and processes of how to get through that. And if we remove those systems, you're left with people feeling like, I don't know what to do.
0: Yep. Yeah. It's sort of like an inversion of an emotional immune system, basically. It's like you're yeah. building that up over time. And I mean, we've, we've even seen, you know, I, I think if let's say an infant, you know, a parent with an infant. Um, is constantly sanitizing their hands and doing different things like that, protecting them from mm-hmm. uh, germs and things like that. I, I've read that there is like a correlation between that and actually weakening their immune system to the mm-hmm. point where they can't actually fight off colds and things like that. So this to me is like an emotional or psychological version of that. Where yep. yeah, it seems good on the surface to protect your kids and not have them have to have a hard life, you know, quote unquote, or deal with adversity. But what is that doing for them long term? Because like life is going to throw things at everybody, right? So mm-hmm. if they're not capable of handling it when it happens. I don't think we've done right by them in terms of setting them up for that kind of, uh, you know, ability to live as a successful adult or a safe adult. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Adversity
1: um, is a core component of growth.
0: Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So let's see. In terms of Any other takeaways that you have from this article?
1: No, I think the the, the big ones were really, um, were, were, were about that. I liked the idea of this becoming like a part of prescription for for, for treatment too. And it, I think it helped, you know, she st- she talked specifically about the person that she worked with that it helped him understand the dopamine that was coming in and helped him to put in systems to not necessarily eliminate it altogether because we can't, mm-hmm. but to manage it a little bit differently. So we found out like what were the biggest dopamine hits that he was getting and how to manage those things. So he was actually in control of them. So mm. he ta- she talked a lot about um, like video game usage. So he gained an awareness of like the types of games that he's going to get sucked into and has a hard time pulling out from. So, you know, sometimes those are referred to like the grind games, right? Or like the, you got a hundred percent those games. Those are, I'm always like, those are the keywords I'm looking out Mm -hmm. for when I'm talking to kids about video games, like Mm -hmm. tell me, understand, like, you know, what kind of game it is. Um, So I thought that that was a really cool takeaway that by examining dopamine, it opened up the conversation to talk about like the things that are promoting that, which in our line of work can be a little bit more of a difficult conversation to, to have about like the introduction, you know, to talk about specifically around, Porn and um, the addictive qualities of that, or gambling, or those places that produce lots of dopamine. It, it gave. It felt like it was a good way to talk about dopamine as the umbrella, and then talk about the specific places that they're getting that from, mm-hmm. and then develop systems to manage those things. And that's really what this all, what everything's all about, is learning how to manage the hormones. Um, and we'll talk about some 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 systems and some ways to do that at the end as well. But that was another thing that I thought was pretty a really cool, like global takeaway, not necessarily specific, but that the way in which she approached it, I thought was really cool um, of talking about like that just the topic of dopamine helped understand and put systems into place to help support the individual. I thought that yeah. that was kind of a cool way to do that.
0: No, it's interesting. And that, that ties into one quote that that's sort of my last takeaway from this article. And it's, uh, quote, our brains evolved this fine-tuned balance over millions of years in which pleasures were scarce and dangers were ever present. The problem today is that we no longer live in that world. Instead, we now live in a world of overwhelming abundance, end quote. So that, it, it ties into how... You have to be aware of how things historically have changed and how, like you said, you have to be more self-aware with regard to your environment and make subtle changes so that you can adapt to the overabundance of some of these sources of pleasure and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, Because what formed our brains over long, long periods of evolution, you know, hundreds of thousands of years... Was the scarcity of of sources of pleasure, mm-hmm. uh, and really the the imbalance of all these other sources of threat and other things, and it's sort of like reversed itself, and yeah. our brain hasn't adapted to that because um, no. you can't adapt that quickly, right? Exactly. Um. So we did want to touch on before we get into like the suggestions for people. I want to touch on a you know a thread by Zane Khan. It's it's uh, he's at Hey Khan H E Y K A H N on Twitter. And he talks about life uh, now versus in the fifties. And the, he starts by saying so, that he talked to his father about his, uh, his childhood today. And here's what his dad basically told him about what life was like in the fifties. And there's kind of 10 different takeaways. You know, this is like a Twitter thread, right? Mm-hmm. Where you have like 10 different, uh, sub sub tweets on the, on the main tweet. Um, and there was some interesting thing, now things. Now, is this like high level? Is this an example of like back in my day? Like <laughs> sort of, yes, but like yeah. there is, there's a lot of truth, right? Yeah. Walking, you know, uh, two miles into the snow both yeah, directions sure. uphill right kind yeah, of thing right. to school yeah sure but there is some truth to it and i think it relates to this dopamine article because it shows you just in the span of 60 years we're talking about the, the the whole you know scope of human evolution we're talking millions of years in 60 years just how much things have changed and how the brain can't adapt that quickly and so it's on us to sort of be self-aware yep. uh, individually and as a culture to adapt because otherwise the, the brain's not going to catch up that quick so mm-hmm. The 10 things they go through and, you know, stop me if you want to like comment on any of them. the yeah. first one is that the post office was at the heart of every community. I think that speaks to, you know, how, when you got exciting information or updates from people, it was very rare, right? You, you know, you might get one letter a day kind of, or one letter a week or that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Right. I remember this, uh, You remember the movie, the Patriot. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. Okay. If you know how, when, uh, you know, Mel Gibson's on his like, you I know, how are you going? Yeah. His mm-hmm. farm or whatever. And, and, uh, The mailman comes, right? The postman or whatever they called it back then Mm -hmm. on horse and that kind of thing. And the kids are just like so excited. Like you're talking like an 18-year-old, like a 14-year-old and they run, uh, they've, you know, hand tied kind of like, you know, letter package kind of thing of like five letters. Mm -hmm. And it probably comes once a month and they have to wait for their father to give them permission to open it. And then they get to open it. And it's like a little bit of news or that kind of thing. And it just shows you like we are. That happened once a month and was very exciting and that's a probably a rush back then was a rush of dopamine for them in that moment mm-hmm. once a month mm-hmm. rest of the time they were sort of dealing with just how to live mm-hmm. how to feed yourself you know sustain food that right. kind of thing right yep. nowadays it's like that moment of them opening those letters happens to each person what 70 times a day right like just by opening twitter and sort of like you mm-hmm. know refreshing your feed kind of thing like that so to me that's an example of like the overabundance of dopamine sources so the yep. second one is Brands weren't everywhere. Um, so to me, this is about sort of like the how we're bombarded by ads. And we talked about the whole behavioral economic system. Um, there's also the pressure to signal worth every day um, through like material items. I don't mm-hmm. think that was... The, he gets into that a little bit. So brands weren't everywhere back in the 50s. Uh, three, electronics weren't everywhere either, right? So it's not like you were... Um, you know, everyone had a, a, phone or computer like that stuff didn't exist back then. Right. Um, and these are all sources of dopamine. Yep. Uh, fourth one is there was no social mobility. So going to college was still the exception. Um, this also reflects how like work back then was still much more based on manual labor, which I actually think relates. Mm-hmm. Uh, I saw, part of me thinks that, um, the fact that physical mo- mobility has been removed from the typical everyday life of people, uh, is, is at our detriment? I don't think that's helping us. Mm-hmm. Right.
1: Yeah. I mean. Sitting down, lots of research will, will point to actually sitting down for an extended period of time is worse for your health than like smoking. Yep. So, yeah, exactly. And we definitely have way more of a sedentary lifestyle than we did definitely in the 1950s for sure. For sure. sure. Yeah. Exactly. Transportation wise, everything wise, it was, you know, you had to walk a lot more. Or you had to be doing manual labor for, for most jobs or things like that. Absolutely.
0: Which has only gotten worse in the last two years because <laughs> with the pandemic, uh, remote work obviously increased gone up and it's probably going
1: to stick around for most companies too. Exactly. And so I think people
0: fail to recognize often that just from going to the office, you have to park, you have to walk into the office, you have to walk from office to office to talk to colleagues. You got to do like, if you wear a, you know, a Fitbit or something else, like you'll see you're walking a a mile and a half to five miles a day, just around your building typically. Mm -hmm. And so when you're at home, you're not doing that. Like you're, you're barely walking a quarter mile Mm -hmm. because you're just kitchen to couch, couch (laughs) to kitchen, bathroom couch. Like you're not going to Rack up the mileage there, you know no, what I mean? So, no. um, so that was that one. The next one is there's more physical danger, uh, back then, you know, dying of a cold wasn't unthinkable. The sixth one is there's less, uh, there was less psychological suffering, so it was more physical danger, but less psychological suffering. Uh, he refers to like drug abuse, alcoholism, anxiety, and loneliness weren't worries for most people. Mm-hmm. Um, most people spent their entire lives in the safety of parents, homes, and communities. This one in particular, I think, is more of like biased towards maybe his dad's perspective from the community he grew up in. Yeah, I don't th- drug abuse, alcoholism, anxiety, and loneliness. Maybe not loneliness back then as much because it was more collective mm-hmm. even in the U.S. compared to you know, how it's so individualistic now. Yep. But drug abuse, alcoholism, and anxiety, I think, has always been
1: uh, I agree. there. I I think it's just one of the things that wasn't talked about. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. And, and or normalized, know. especially alcoholism.
0: Exactly. And most people spent their entire lives in the safety of parents and homes and communities. I, I don't. Th- I don't think. I wouldn't say communities were, you know, safer back then or that more people had great lives or or that kind of thing. That was probably his experience. Yeah. Seven is material lives were poorer, but products lasted longer. Um, So again, like, you know, you didn't have to feel the need to upgrade every five seconds to things like we're kind of bombarded with now. Mm -hmm. Uh, Things actually lasted long. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's see. The next one, eighth one is inner lives were richer. So families were bigger. Neighbors were closer with each other. I would say that you know the um, what's now referred to as IRL, right, in real life. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that kind of lifestyle was more present um, mm-hmm. in terms of just interacting in person with people and being more friendly. I would say now a lot of stuff is online, um, and you know with the uh, the sp- um, you know, how communities are more spread out now and suburban and car driven and things like that. I think it yeah. is a little bit different in terms of how you
1: interact with people. Yeah. And I'd say that this wasn't necessarily just to like the 1950s. I'd say that this has been a change probably in the last like 10 to 15, maybe 20 years. Um, because I mean, my my experience was very neighborhood. We had like everybody looked out for everybody. So if yep. like my parents couldn't pick us up from school. My neighbors would or vice versa. Everyone's feeding everybody. It was much more of like Eaton Road, right? Yep. was like a collective of individuals and mm-hmm. families. And it was much more communal, like come home, you're not coming in the house until, you know, until dinner time and we're playing out in the street and things like that. Like, and I, um, I remember when I was working in schools, I was like prescribing like with families, like block parties yeah, or like yeah. get out and meet yep. your neighbors and things like that. Because it was like you said, I think in the last, and definitely the pandemic heightened this, but like everybody's getting a lot of their social interaction online. Right. And it's a very different, very different thing than it was when you're working, like when you were with somebody or a collective piece, like going to knock on someone's door to see if they're home. Now it's like sending them a message or exactly. whatever it is. It's very different. Yeah.
0: I agree. And I I grew up in a very similar, um, you know, situation. I grew up in Chelmsford, Massachusetts, and it was, you know, we would just like ride bikes everywhere and walk around. Like I wouldn't come back until it was dark and no one would be worrying about me. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think like, so the, the digital revolution has taken this to a whole nother level, but even before that, I think what happened in the, Probably in the '90s, start started in the '80s, but got worse in the '90s and into like the early 2000s was um, this sort of a um, gra- gradually increasing obsession with the possibility of abduction. I think that did in, in the United States. Um, maybe it's because you know serial killer things were popularized or whatever started to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, parents started to get more and more protective and you started to see less and less of a leash with just letting your kids go out and do things. Mm-hmm. And I actually think that's, that's really played a huge role in, in uh, worsening mental health situations for kids because they often aren't given the chance to have unsupervised play. We've talked about this, I think, in past episodes where it's like the importance of having a young kid be around siblings and around friends without parents lurking to step in and solve problems every time they happen is really at their detriment. It relates to the whole emotional immune system we talked about Agreed. earlier. Um, so that's gotten worse with tech. But the first wave was just parents being much more afraid of, of their kids being abducted or things like that and not allowing the freedom to go roam around town anymore.
1: I agree. Yeah. And one other piece too, and it's semi-related, but I think one of the other feedback that I got from parents too, um, and I would say especially in more like affluent towns where like... College is the thing that they're teaching their kids about from like five since like, you know, when they're five years old is that parents would be like, there's no kids in the neighborhood anymore because they've got Russian math and they've got violin and they've got band and they've got extra reading and they've got tutors. And there's just like the availability to have unstructured time is to your point, like gone because it's filled with structured time to help them. structured. Time. Agreed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and not realizing. And I think there's social pressures too of, you know, if your kid isn't in the right thing, you're feeling guilt and pressure as a parent because my, well, yep. am I not setting my kid up for success? It's like this well, whole cyclical up with piece. Appearances, right? agreed. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yep.
0: Your kid becomes almost another version of clothing, right? Agreed. It's like status symbol. hundred percent. Like, um, which is scary and kind of sad. Yep. Um, so that was number eight. The ninth one is there's, there was more social cohesion back in the fifties. So, uh, and it was just interesting because they put like, there was no Instagram or MTV to see how the rich and famous lived. No one knew or cared how the other half lived. I, I believe that. And I think mm-hmm. I would guess life was a lot more simple when you didn't have to constantly get bombarded by what other people are doing that may look better than what you're doing. And I think that the desire to compare ourselves to others is get going off the charts these days. I mean, you see it in young kids. They just mm-hmm. never feel good enough because they're looking at Instagram and other things. And it's like, there's always someone with more, someone cooler, someone this to, you know, be bombarded by that at all times is really what's unfair for a developing brain because they don't know how to reconcile
1: that. No, and before, even before social media, it was reality TV. And like like the explosion of reality yeah, that's TV. that's what we kind of grew up around. Right, right it was exactly. MTV and then the reality TV shows exactly, and like that,
0: like right, exactly, Excuse me stuff like that. Um yeah. So the last one is in some ways life was easier. Um, you know, marriages didn't have to be a love story, work didn't have to be where you found meaning, people didn't expect to be happy all the time. There's a lot of value in those three things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think, especially the last one, people didn't expect to be happy all the time. I think, I don't know when this started, but um, maybe in the last 10, 15, 20 years, maybe a little bit more than that, people more and more sort of seem to be under the illusion that life is like, you're supposed to be gearing your life to be happy all the time. And <laughs> yeah. that's not possible. It's not, no, the the more exhausting. Exactly. <laughs> and we, we talk a lot about expectations. When you set your expectation, the bar that high of like, uh, well, I should... I should be happy all the time that's what there's people out there that are happy all the time and i'm not so that means my life sucks or i need to change or what was me kind of thing that this the formula we say is like um happiness equals reality minus expectations right mm-hmm. and so if your reality is here and your expectations are here you're at a huge deficit if if your reality here and you have zero expectations you have a surplus yeah you're okay right mm-hmm. and i think that it factors into this that we're not supposed to be happy all the time. Like happiness or joy, I guess you'd say, as an emotion, mm-hmm. is fleeting. It comes in moments, but that's not necessarily a baseline. It's not supposed to be. I think that um, that that also relates to maybe the comfort crisis that you talked about that book.
1: Yep. But how.
0: Things are so good for us that we just expect, like the lack of adversity makes us have these unrealistic expectations about being happy all the time or having the perfect marriage all the time or whatever.
1: Right. I think that the, the the joy piece relates back to like the dopamine, right? We can't have dopamine present and we can't, just like we can't have joy present all the time, exactly. right? It's this balance of being able to to manage joy or, or introductions of joy, but it can't be all the time. It's your, like you said, if the expectation is I'm supposed to just feel this elation and happiness all the time. And I have had conversations with people a lot of conversations with people who are like, I'm just not happy. I'm not happy all the time and it's like okay let's talk about what that would look like like you being happy all the time is that a realistic expectation for us to try to hold or is there something different that we need to be talking about and it always ends up being like well let's let's manage the good times when we can let's manage the hard times when they come as well but the point like at the the relation between like joy and dopamine are like the exact same right cuz a lot of times joy promotes Again, dopamine, yeah. right? And so if we're always joyful, it's the same thing. We're just always feeding ourselves dopamine, and that's not a healthy way to live.
0: Totally. And it relates back to, there was this, this quote in the dopamine article It <laughs> said, um, pleasure and pain are processed in the same parts of the brain. The brain tries to keep it imbalanced in this thing called homeostasis. Like, So literally, <laughs> the more pleasure you experience, the more your brain is going to try to pull you back. Mm-hmm. And there's going to be a, a sort of boomerang effect to that. I think that right. shows you that we're not meant to be in some perfect, joyful place all the time. No. Um, and an extreme example of this, and this is why I always, I always refer to uh, substance use as borrowed happiness from the next day, because what you're essentially doing is you're using drugs or chemicals to chemically induce a different level of dopamine release or, or hormone right. release that your body's not naturally going to do. Right. And so if your max capacity on a given day is a 10 and you're drinking on that given day, you're probably gonna get to a 13, but guess what? Tomorrow, your your ceiling is seven. Yeah, that's what happens, yep. right? And so you have to recognize that your body's always trying to stay in balance and that's why, like, I think the more people become self-aware and emotionally aware, the more they stop looking at sadness, like it's a bad thing. And they start to look at like a flip side of, of a coin with joy. Yep. And it's just part of life. And it's part of that spectrum. And you, you, maybe you dip a little too far into sadness sometimes, and then you have to do things to kind of like balance it out. Mm-hmm. And this, you know, sort of brings us to our last part of this episode where we're going to, you know, you're going to give some suggestions about how do people, all right, we know that we've talked about how with the risks and the importance of self-awareness when it comes to understanding hormones, understanding our environment, the digital environment, how it's hijacking these things. What would you say to people in terms of like, what are some healthy ways for them to maybe prescribe, uh, some angles into healthy hormone release or hormone balance, uh, achieving?
1: Yeah. So this probably won't be too much of a shocker for most people. Cause I'm going to list out the things that you've been probably hearing for a lot of time, like exercise, good sleep hygiene, um, healthy eating, meditation and breath training are some of the most effective ways to organically release some of those different pieces. And Mm -hmm. the one interesting differential specifically to exercise which can generate, generates dopamine, also really heavily um, releases endorphins that when you go because you feel like you need to versus you want to, um, there's a difference in the, the neurochemicals that get sort of released and the neurotransmitters that get released into your brain. And so, if you're going there because you're like, I'm, I look a certain way or I'm, I'm fat or I don't look great, or, I need to do this because of that. It's different than if you're going there with the recognition of this is going to be hard, but I'm going to feel great afterwards. That's different. And your brain codes that different. And you want to try to get to the place of I'm doing this because I know intention. it's going to be intention yeah, is yeah, huge. Yeah. Um, and so, when I talk about exercise, I want to make that differentiation between that because, and this is another art, we can talk about this in another podcast too, but, um, weight and body dysmorphia is, is huge, um, and huge among men. It's not talked about as much, but it's a huge, it's a huge thing. Um, and that's a big distinguishing factor of like going there because I know I'm going to purposely putting yourself into a state of discomfort Mm -hmm. with the understanding that it will be beneficial for you because you'll feel better, Mm -hmm. not look better Mm -hmm. is, is a big differential. So exercise is a really great way to sort of in, you know, promote good, healthy endorphins. Also, breath training, breathing on purpose um, is a really effective way to do that. And um, through different types of breathing exercises and stuff like that, you can actually physically release endorphins into Mm -hmm. the brain. And this is the type of stuff when I, when I talk to clients about breath training and, you know, I I gauge their reaction to what I'm talking about, the importance of it. And I, we've talked about this before, like tons of eye rolls or gruffs or- You're telling me i'm going to feel better from breathing I it can't be that easy It can't so, be yeah. that easy right um and so you start talking about like what neurologically changes and shifts in your brain when you when you do this type of stuff um that starts to help you know release those things and breath training like i said endorphins are sort of like the morphine for the brain so it sort of blocks the receptors that receive like pain mm-hmm. um so helps with that it, it also sort of activates the parasympathetic nervous system which is sort of like the tranquilizer for your nervous system mm-hmm. um like the brake pedal um, yeah yep. exactly kind of helps you like settle down and manage the, the hormones that might be contributing to anxiety like cortisol and adrenaline and those types of things. So, um, the other stuff for, for dopamine, um, music is a really, is a really effective way to do those things. There was an interesting article and research on the difference between instrumentals and lyrics which i thought was pretty interesting um and they said that instrumentals was a more effective way to receive dopamine um than was the, with the presence of lyrics
0: that's how i get into a flow state i listen to <clears throat> instrumental based music a lot of like um music scores from like movies and soundtracks and things like that without words yep uh, like made by composers Locks me in and totally calms me down. So I don't. That might be subjective, but I definitely notice.
1: Yeah, agreed. Yeah. And I think one of the one of the discerning factors of like when we're talking about hormone release and management is that these are done f- with a purpose, right? I think with dopamine especially, we get dopamine hits from our phone that we're not planning on, right, yeah. or that we don't have any control over. So mm-hmm. our brain doesn't really know what it, it's just getting flooded. Yeah us purposely adding dopamine to ourselves when we may need it or purposely adding serotonin or endorphins or things like that is... Very, very different from like a neurological standpoint. Very different of how we're approaching managing our hormones mm-hmm. than just like by accident. Yeah, when we're in control, we're teaching our brain that we are in control of these hormones, and then when we can start to recognize when we're not in homeostasis yeah. or we're not in a place that we are because we have been actively training ourselves to manage these hormones in a different way. Um, and that's a different way of thinking about it um, that I try to really try to instill when I'm working with with working with different clients. So. Um, and serotonin is the is the other one too. And again, a lot of the same things I'm talking about is really important. Getting yourself into like healthy sleep management mm-hmm. and healthy sleep cycles really helps to, to release serotonin um, and really helps to sort of manage all of those different things. So, um, and serotonin, like I talked earlier before, is sort of one of the main hormones, the, the misrepresentation or the lack thereof of the receptors in the brain can lead to anxiety and depression mm-hmm. and things like that. And so exercise is a good one. Breath training, meditation especially, is one of the really great ways to try to release the serotonin and sort of activate new neurotransmitters and neural pathways to help facilitate those types of things. So I could speak about this for another four hours, mm-hmm. so I won't. But um, those are some really healthy ways to do that. And I know that we've talked about habit forming in, in the past. And so a lot of the things that I mentioned, exercise, healthy eating, good sleep, meditation, and breath training help to manage all of these. I sort of specifically talked about ones that help to generate multiple Mm -hmm. um there's a lot more different activities that you can do like oxytocin like either through physical touch or embrace or even sensory things like wearing a compression shirt or things like that you can can do it to yourself too i think this doesn't it
0: doesn't have to be uh you can kind of hijack the brain's need for that agreed um by providing touch for yourself i know that sounds weird but Mm -hmm. like you can do that yep um in a very intentional way you don't need a partner to do that you know um I think this is where like even like weighted blankets are something that people use as a way to kind of provide this kind of thing sometimes. So,
1: yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And so this is kind of the cool, fun stuff of like affecting and changing your brain um, on purpose. And recreating new neural pathways in your brain to sort of restructure the way that you manage yourself. And when you start to really dive in and do the work, not only are you more in control, but you're more observant when things are not. Mm-hmm. And you can start to do, then you have a set of systems and things like that to work back to. And like I was saying before about habits, is that if you start treating this stuff like just general hygiene. Prehab work of like the importance of exercise, the importance of eating well, the importance of breath training and meditation, and like incorporating those into your everyday. If those are just things you're doing, you will be working on the management of your own emotions, just because these are the things that you just take care of every day. And you have
0: to. I mean, we keep talking about this, but we're gonna keep shouting it to a blue in the face. It's no longer a luxury. You, like you have to be doing this, if for nothing else, because. Culturally, collectively, in terms of our experience, things have changed so much so quickly, and our brains have not adapted that if mm-hmm. you're not doing this, you're at a deficit, you're just going to be out a deficit, it's going to affect you emotionally and psychologically, and you're often not going to really see it until it's too late, and it's going mm-hmm. to be different things, you have to be taking control of these things through self awareness and through prehab methods to protect yourself against some of the things, whether it's just everyday life, or you know, the behavioral economics and the things we're being yeah. bombarded with by, through technology and, and and what we see when we go into our environment every day.
1: So, yeah, and it's not a representation of weakness to add these things. I think that's a big it's the barrier. Yeah. It's, the, yeah. it's the, literally the exact opposite. Yeah. You are strengthening yourself by doing these things and leaving yourself less vulnerable and susceptible to mental anguish or whatever it happens to be by doing these things. It's harder to do. It contributes to strength. I think a lot of the conversations and barriers that I get with young guys and just people in general is that like, oh, if I need to be doing this, I can't do it on my own. Well, no, I'm teaching you how to do it on your own, right? Like I'm teaching you how to do this on your own. You don't have the skills, so I'm giving you the skills so you don't have to you know be feeling like you can't do this or managing these things and these are the skills that you can be able to do these things yourself so it's man agreed i'm gonna be blue in the face yeah. screaming this as loud as i can but this is the stuff and sarah lazar who's a um a researcher out of out of harvard talks about like that that's saying like this is no longer a nice to have it's a need to have yeah, yeah. and we've we passed that point yeah these are things you need to be doing every day absolutely absolutely so um we
0: appreciate everyone listening to this episode on on hormones and specifically dopamine we'll put a link to that uh, dopamine um article in the show notes um and again we want to thank everyone for listening to this episode and we'll be back next week